If you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn to the book of Ruth. And uh, today we begin uh, starting at uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 and working our way through this book. Last uh, Sunday there was an opportunity to just introduce the book, to get a sort of a bird's eye view of the book of Ruth. And now we're going to sort of take it step by step, um, uh, phrase by phrase, and uh, verse by verse. Um, And we do pray that God will go with us and... um, uh, help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives over these next little while. So, Father, we now turn before you and we uh, give you this time of worship around your word. We do ask that uh, you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in the scriptures. Sometimes we will talk about some hard things. Sometimes we will talk about joyful things. Um, but these are all things that you have revealed to us. And so may we not kick against the goads, but may we say, God, I have a soft, submissive heart before you. Teach me, help me, change me, grow me, sanctify me. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Storms uh, impact us in various ways. I'm interested to just look around and see um, a few vacant seats today because as some looked out and saw the, I guess we would call the snowstorm in Parksville, um, all one and a half inches of it. Uh, it impacted our decision about whether we should stay home or leave. Um, but uh, storms are a fascinating thing. I remember being in the prairies and uh, living in Saskatoon. And in uh, the prairies, you can see storms coming from miles and miles. And uh, it's often a fascinating thing to uh, sit in your backyard or to um, go to a particular vantage point and just see the heavy, thick, dark, menacing clouds rolling across the prairie heading straight for you. I think there's other times um, I'm fascinated by the satellite images of hurricanes as they work their way through the Gulf of Mexico up towards the southern states and then begin to work their way up the coast. And it's always fascinating to me to, to get that bigger perspective because even in the midst of these massive storms, you realize that outside of the storms, there's calm and there's blue and there's things that are normal. But you get a, this, this picture of these menacing, or menacing clouds that are working their way towards the coast. And there's always a, a variety of reactions that can take place. I've never watched it, but I've, I've, I've seen some uh, uh, advertisements for that uh, show. I think it's called Storm Chasers. And I guess they, they drive in their cars. And while most normal sane people um, drive away from the storms or at least hunker down, they drive into them. And uh, it's not just always fun and games. They're trying to understand the storm and trying to figure out what makes that storm tick and how powerful the winds are and those sorts of things. I think there's other people um, that do stupid things. We used to, uh, as a group of about four teenagers in Saskatoon, when we'd see those storms come, uh, we would try and find the highest hill or something in Saskatoon, um, and we would <laughs> drive up there. And we would watch this storm roll in, and thank the Lord, we were never struck by lightning. Um, but other people, uh, in these uh, big storms that come in down in the States, you see them jump in their cars with their precious belongings, and they head tail for some place where the storm's not going to hit. Other people hunker down, they batten up the hatches, they board up the windows, they go down in the basement, and they wait the storm out. There's any number of responses to a storm. What we find as we come to the book of Ruth is that we see a storm gathering on the horizon. And I want us to read the first uh, five verses of Ruth and then come back and consider this storm that is brewing um, on the horizon of this little family's life. 
In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malan and Chilion died. And so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. As this storm is brewing on the horizon, what we find this little family doing is running from the storm. And my sense is that they are running for all the wrong reasons. And I wonder if they saw God riding on the storm as we sung in that song. I wonder if they detected the hand of the Lord even as this storm was brewing and they were leaving. The line from that song wrote, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the seas and rides upon the storms. Loved ones, God even is in the storms of our lives. What we need to do is take time to see him in those storms. We look forward, uh, Cowper goes on and he says, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. There is a time at which God will reveal to us why the circumstances of our life are as they are. As we get through then this book, we first thing that we see is that when we temporarily decide to avoid the storm then we are headed for trouble. How do we know a big storm is coming in the book of Ruth? Well, consider these three sort of indicators. There are three phrases in the first verse. The very first phrase, and I like to consider this the the wind kicking up. You can tell when a storm is coming because the wind starts to hurl around you. And so the very first phrase is this phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. It ties us to a particular time and setting. And if you're at all familiar with the time of the book of Judges, it's where we have Samson and and Jephthah and um, a couple other stories that we're not so familiar with, we realize that these were not good days. The period of the Judges were a dark and stormy period in Israel's history. The time frame stretches anywhere from 250 years to 380 years, depending on how you calculate it. And the days begin with the death of Joshua and the the selection of Saul to be king over Israel. And these dark and stormy days are characterized by a cycle that is described in the book of Judges in chapter 2, and it's a cycle that we even see worked out in the lives of God's people again and again today. And the cycle is, is one that begins this way, the people sin. That's not uncommon. I sin, you sin, we all sin together. It's something that happens. We're not perfect yet. And so we sin. The trouble is sometimes we sin with a high hand. And we look around the world and we say, well, that looks good. That looks good. God's way's tough. That way's easy. God's way's hard. That way's pleasant. I'm going to go head on for that way. And so we choose sin over the way of God. God is a gracious God and a merciful God. And so sometimes he gives us over to our sins as a discipline. 
And sometimes as a punishment. But he says, if you read the book of Judges again and again and again, you will read that God handed the people over to their enemies. In other words, the hand of the Lord was against them because of their sin. It's not unlike Romans chapter 1 where it says God gave them up to a depraved mind. God gave them up to a depraved way of thinking. And so the people sinned. God handed them over then to servitude or, or servitude to serve their enemies. And he says, if you want that way of life, here it is. It's yours to have. And then what happens, though, after a period of time, and this is something we need to learn, beloved, is that sometimes we think, well, after a week or two or after a day or two, I'll come back to God and things will be okay because we think God will be gracious and merciful to me. But you read the book of Judges, and sometimes you read these periods lasted 18 years, 23 years, 40 years. God hands us over to our own ways for a great length of time. But at some point, we come to realize that the oppression and the distress that we are experiencing is so overwhelming, the joy in our sinning, the joy in our idolatry, the joy in those things that we have chosen was a lie, and we cry out to God. We, we come before God with supplication. And what does God do? He saves us. He delivers us. He sends something or someone to draw us out of our difficult situation. And so we see this cycle happening again. The people sin. God hands them over to their sinful ways. They cry out to God. God saves them. And then the cycle starts all over again. The people sin. And it's this ongoing cycle that's repeated in the book of Judges. I think the best summary I've ever read of the book of Judges is by a fellow who says that these days are described by the canonization of Israel. The people become like the world around them. And as we read the book of Judges, we witness the spiritual um, spiral of the people of God as they move from light to darkness. The land of Canaan has squeezed Israel into its mold. Is there not a New Testament scripture that reminds us of that? Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Do not, be, do not let the world shape you into its mold. And so we see this thing as an ongoing stress and temptation that we as people of God face. What will the impact of the world be on us? Twice in Judges at the end of the book we read this very sad but telling commentary. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The days of the period of Judges are, are characterized by anarchy. It was everyone for themselves. Everyone doing what they thought was right. And this is where the story of Ruth takes place. During this time period. Now we don't know exactly where the book of Ruth fits. Many think it fits somewhere around chapter 3 to, uh, to the time of the judge Jephthah. But we don't really know. When we read in Judges chapter 3, we realize that Israel had been subdued or had been in servitude to the people of Moab for 18 years. But at the end of that, God raised up a deliverer, Ehud, who delivered the people of Israel from the land of Moab. There was a great slaughter of the Moabites, and it says that Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. What we need to realize is subdued does not mean conquered. Subdued just means 
put down for a period of time. We need to listen to that. But there is another more direct connection with the book of Ruth as this, this literary storm is building. And it's that phrase, um, a, a man from Bethlehem in Judah. There was more than one Bethlehem, so it was identified by saying this is the Bethlehem in Judah. And it identifies that specific town. And there is this direct connection with the last five chapters of the book of Judges, which are some of the most difficult chapters from an ethical, moral perspective that you will find in all of the Bible. In chapters 17 and 18, they describe how a young man from Bethlehem, a Levite, a priest, decided to sell his services as a priest to the highest bidder. And so the story in those two chapters describe this account of greed and betrayal and bribery and deception as everyone did what was right in his own eyes and this young Levite from Bethlehem in Judea sold his services to the highest bidder. And then you come to Judges chapter 19 to 21, some of the most horrific scriptures In those three chapters, they describe the horrific death and dismemberment of a Levite concubine who was also from Bethlehem in Judah. And these chapters, those three chapters, narrate this incredible reversal. How God had commanded the people of Israel to go into the land of Canaan and to destroy the people of the land. But they never obeyed. They never carried it out. They embraced the people of Canaan. But when it comes to one of their own tribes, a tribe who, yes, they sinned horrifically, it's the only time in the book of Judges where you find the people coming together with one mind and with one heart to destroy one of their own. Why is it that we can be so focused and so hard and so harsh on our own people? These were dark days then. There was this literary um, storm being described as these were the days when the judges ruled. Loved ones, are you aware of the influence of the world around you? Are you aware of how the world tells you to respond to the storms in your life? Are you aware of the context in which we live? Are you sure that you can resist it? Do you know what your heart is feeling? Do you know what is shaping your thinking? Because this is one of the things that impacts the way this little family responds to the days in which they live and the storms that hit their life. The second thing that you read, it's the very next phrase, There was a famine in the land. If the first phrase describes the wind picking up, this phrase describes the dropping of the temperature. Not all things happen by accident. God is in control of everything, even a famine. And the actions of God's people um, are closely tied to the consequences in their lives. And as we think about the Old Testament, as the first phrase describes the geographic setting, this marker describes the spiritual setting. This famine was a signal. It was a sign. It was something that God had sent to them. And if you have time today, read Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And Leviticus chapter 26, because they describe the blessings and the curses, the blessings that come from obedience and the curses that result from disobedience. There is a connection um, between behavior and consequences. Now, it's a connection that we're going to investigate over time because it's not always a black and white connection. 
But, but and what, what we're saying here is there is more behind, uh, more going on in our lives than the spiritual um, or the physical realities. Behind the physical realities, there are spiritual realities. There are spiritual consequences. And this spiritual or this family would have known. They almost certainly would have known that had they returned to the Lord, had they come back to him in, pre- in, in repentance, had they encouraged their neighbors and their city to come before God in repentance, the promises said, then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. He will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of the ground. But it appears they didn't make this connection between their physical circumstances and the spiritual realities taking place in their lives. Loved ones, I have said for many years since I've been here that we need to have eyes that, that look at the, the spiritual realities behind the physical realities of our life and consider the storms that might be brewing in our lives. Consider the, the winds that are blowing. Consider the temperature that's dropping. It could be due to any number of things. It could be due to a, a new boss that's now in your office place and tensions are building and you know changes are coming. It could be to an unresolved tension in your marriage that's growing and growing and growing. It could be a frustration that you feel because you're still single or because you're not yet divorced or it could be the fact that retirement is just around the corner and your RRSPs don't sort of match what you perceive your need to be. It could be a health storm. The doctor has just called you. The tone in his voice, his request for further tests signals that there's more going on than you thought. The clouds are gathering. The storm is building in your life. And in the midst of that, are you aware of how the world might be encouraging you to respond to those circumstances? And are you aware of how the Bible might encourage you to respond to those circumstances? Are you willing to look at the circumstances that you find taking place in your life and saying, God, are you, what's going on here? God, are you trying to get my attention here? God, is there something that you want me to see in these circumstances of my life? Is there more going on here than meets the eye? Why am I in this situation, God? What are you trying to tell me? So we need to consider when the circumstances of our life foreshadow an impending storm, how are we going to respond? The third thing they do, which signals that there's a storm coming, they went to Moab. They went to Moab. This is like the static electricity in the air now that you can feel as the storm is getting closer. And instead of turning back to the Lord, this little family turns their backs on the Lord and goes to live in Moab. Moab was on the other side of the Dead Sea. It was on the east side of the Dead Sea. It was maybe a 50, 60 mile journey for them. Today it's roughly what we know to be the kingdom of Jordan. It was not part of the land of Canaan, and so its people were not under the ban um, as the people of Canaan were. But these were not people they should have turned to in a crunch. The Moabites had descended from Moab, the son of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. And they quickly had become a thorn in the side of the Israelites' um, uh, backs. They, they, for instance, they would not let the Israelites pass through their land as they were journeying 
were journeying from Egypt to Canaan. And at the end of their 40-year journey, as they gathered on the plains of Moab, the Moabites were freaked out by this people that was gathering. And so they hired a certain prophet, Balaam, if you remember in Numbers chapter 22, to come and curse the people. But every time Balaam tried to curse the people of Israel, God turned it into a blessing. And so they were ticked at Balaam. Balaam was ticked because he wasn't get his money. And so sort of as he's on his way out, he says, well, there's one more thing you can do. Send your women in among their men, have this massive orgy, and you will stumble this people up. And that's just what happens. And tens of thousands of people died as a result of their plunging into that sinful situation. And then we come to Judges chapter 3, which tells us that Eglon, king of Moab, had the people under servitude for 18 years. They went to Moab. There's nothing wrong with emigration during times that are tough. But there's everything wrong with it if you are turning your back on God and going your own way or if you are running from a storm in your life. And so rather than repent, rather than talk to God, they run. This was not a good thing. A man went to Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. What were you thinking? I suspect this man considered this good leadership in his home. After all, he was providing for his family, right? He was dealing with the situation, but he was not leading well. And I think in hindsight, he was really only thinking of himself. Where is the indication that he sought the Lord? Why would he leave Bethlehem, the house of bread, to go to Moab, their enemy? Did he realize that he was leading his family away from God? Men, you have a responsibility to lead your family well. And here is a stark example of the wrong steps taken to deal with the circumstances of a storm brewing in a family. And I suspect he thought that this was just a stopgap measure. After all, don't we always think that? We're not going to be gone long. We're only going to sojourn there. Now, if you are somebody who underlines in your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to underline three words today. And the first word is sojourn. They went to sojourn in Moab. To sojourn means to live among. It means to live among as a stranger, though. It means to be a foreigner. A sojourner is an outsider. They don't enjoy the rights of being a resident. They live among people who are not their blood relatives, and they are dependent on the goodness and the hospitality of others. Sojourn suggests a temporary departure. And so I'm sure he said to himself and maybe even to his family, well, family, you know, we're, this is a real tough time in our life. So we're not going to put down roots there, but things are not good right here. And, and we're going to be careful, and we're only here for a little while, you know, and, and we're only going to stop coming to church for a few months, or, you know, we're only going to go here where there is no church for a little while, but don't worry about it. We're just there for a short time, not a long time. I have seen this far too often. As a storm approaches and time get tough, rather than work it out with God, rather than reflect on the storm and what we are thinking, we take matters into our own hands. And we try to outrun the storm or we try to deal with the storm in our own way and we go to a foreign land and sojourn there. 
how we talk ourselves into bad decisions. How we justify sinful responses. Are you thinking of going into a foreign land to sojourn this morning? Stop. Face the storm that God is brewing in your life. It's a good chance he's in it. The second thing that I was contemplating as I read this, Elimelech, what are you thinking? We learn a little bit about the family here now. They have names. This reminds us that these are real people in a real time, in a real place. In other words, this could just as easily be you and I, or as it, as it is Elimelech and Naomi. Naomi, his wife, which we'll hear a lot more about now over the next few weeks. The two sons, Malon and Chilion. Um, and the husband, Elimelech. Elimelech means God is my king. There is no evidence that this was true of Elimelech. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem, the house of bread in Judah. And I'm not trying to read between the lines here, but I I can't help it. The phrase comes up in verse 2. Notice he says, the, the narrator says, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. As I stopped and I read that, I thought, wow, there's pride there. There's a sense of, these are, these are great people. These are Ephrathites. What a people. What a family. What a town. They come from Bethlehem, the house of bread. And then notice the very next phrase. They went into the country of Moab. It's like, they did what? It's like disbelief. It's like, it's like shock. It's like, you've got to be joking. They went to Moab? It's a contrast that's being drawn here. And who, has, who of us haven't made similar things? We hear about a marriage breaking up and, and one of the spouse um, going with another individual. They did what? Can't, they were married for that? that and, and they did what? They had everything going and they went Where? Or sometimes we think about kids that that are raised in a a Christian home. And they had all the benefits of a family of God. They had all the benefits of a loving mother and father. And then they go off to university or they they get into high school and then they start getting into trouble. And you you hear about the things that you're doing and you chat with their parents and, and they think, what? They left that home and that church for that? I don't understand it. Like there's shock and there's disbelief because it doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't fit. Here we have a man from the kingdom of God leaving the kingdom of God and going back into the world. He did what? And if you're underlining these words, this is the next one to underline. Remained. Remained. It's like, come on. Can't be serious, Elimelech. You know better. What do you mean? You're not coming back? They remained there. The sojourn had become comfortable. The intention is less and less to go back. Things are good. The people are friendly. The crops are bountiful. News from back home is bleak. Let's just dig in. The Hebrew word remain has an Akkadian equivalent. It means to turn oneself into or to become like. They were becoming like the people around them. Isn't that just the way it is? When you willingly leave God and the people of God 
and the things of God, you embrace something else. You embrace another God. You embrace another people. You embrace another way of life. As Bob Dylan so famously sang, you've got to serve somebody. If you're not serving God, you're going to serve another God. Loved ones, this is not good news. This is not the right response to a storm. And I see this far too often. You see, there's a spiritual truth being revealed here. If you leave God, how do you know whether or not you will find your way back to God? Life gets comfortable. We make new friends. We establish new relationships. We have become friends with the world. But never forget, loved ones, that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Verse 3 is kind of startling. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Whether you understand this to be direct divine punishment or not, I will leave that with you to sort out. I have my own leanings, and maybe they'll come out over the next two or three weeks. But regardless of how you understand his death, this one point is unmistakable. He never made it back home. He never returned to his people. He never came back to Bethlehem. He never returned to the place of worship. He was buried in a foreign land, which in itself the Bible speaks of as a curse. What a way to end. Away from the people of God. Away from the place where God's blessing is. As the proverb said, there is a way that seems right unto a man but its end is the way of death. The hand of God in my leaving. See, loved ones, this is the risk that you and I take when we leave God because circumstances are bleak and we go it alone. We might not make it back in this life. There are no guarantees. And, and not only that is we are not islands and the pain of our leaving has a lasting impact on those that are left behind. And Naomi was left with her two sons. She was in a foreign land. She was without a husband. Her life had took a serious, significant turn for the worse in the storm. Our actions have consequences. Husbands, your decisions impact your family. Wives, your decisions impact your family. Children, Your decisions impact your parents. Grandparents, your decisions impact those of your children and of your grandchildren. We are not an island. And while the narrator makes no comment, my heart begins to break for Naomi. This poor woman. Here she is, husbandless, in a foreign land, away from everything that brings her security. When the bottom falls out, Verses 4 to 5. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. Have you ever been in that situation in your life? You think, wow, this is the bottom. And then boom, something else happens. I've known those type of experiences. Not very often, thank the Lord. But we read, these boys married Moabite girls. But what a surprise. It shouldn't shock us. 
what else would we expect? They had left the family of God. They had left the people of God. They had left the place of God, and they had gone to a foreign land. They had taken their kids there. What else would we expect? You're going to find a mate where you live. But consider this. Elimelech's one bad decision now creates the context for his children also to make bad decisions. And I don't think we should be too hard on Naomi, but where was her influence? Maybe she was simply taking her cues from her husband here. He had taught her well. This is not a bad place after all. This is not a bad land. These are not bad people. Having your boys marry Moabite women is the next logical step. Welcome, Ruth and Orpha. But the narrator gives us clues that this is not a good thing. The phrase he uses is not the normal one for announcing a marriage. He uses the phrase that these two Moabite boys lift or carry a woman, which has disastrous consequences when you consider its context in Judges chapter 21. As opposed to taking a woman, Moreover, both are childless after 10 years. Moreover, both of them die at the end of 10 years. True, their marriages weren't strictly prohibited in Scripture. But Scripture did say that if an Israelite married a Moabite, that their children would be restricted from ever going into the temple of God for 10 generations. Wouldn't be a wise thing if you wanted to worship with God's people and your family, would it? But I suspect it really wasn't their concern. They weren't going to the house of God anytime soon. After all, they had embraced Moabite culture. Why worry about the word of God? Fascinating. Why worry about the word of God? That's a loaded phrase. How many of our actions, when the circumstances of our lives are forming into a storm are shaped through a consideration of the word of God. Now brace yourself, because here's the third word I want you to underline. Lived. Verse 4, they lived there about 10 years. I don't know if this is the total number of years this family lived in Moab, or if it refers to the amount of time they lived there after the two marriages. Either way, 10 years is a long time. This word means to sit to remain, to dwell, to inhabit. You live in a house. There's a note of permanence here. It's a word that's used in Psalm 1 in a negative context. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor remains, or lives, sorry, in the seat of scoffer, or sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, don't take up permanent residence among scoffers. So they had gone from sojourning to remaining to living. There's another place that that word is used. It's used in Genesis 19.1. And Lot was living in the gate of Sodom. Do you know there's a remarkable parable between the journey of Lot and his family and the journey of Elimelech and his family as they move from safety and security of God's people into the crushes of the world that is opposed to God. In Genesis 3.12, we read that after Abraham and Lot had come to a dispute because their flocks were too big and because their, their herdsmen were fighting, they decided to part ways. And so we read that Lot went and settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. 
Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. He pitched his tents near Sodom. Away from righteousness towards wickedness. That was the orientation now of his life. Somewhere between Genesis 13.12 and Genesis 14.12, another move is made. Because we read that Sodom is attacked and its city ransacked. And the scripture says, And they took also Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. Wow. That's a big move. Tents facing Sodom to now dwelling in Sodom. And that's where Genesis 19.1 comes in. We find that the two angels are coming to Sodom in the evening, and they found Lot sitting in the gate of Sodom. He was right in the heart of that city. That was a move from the outskirts of the town to the very heart of wickedness. There's a spiritual lesson there. I think that's what Ruth is trying to teach us behind the physical realities that are being described. Loved ones, such journeys away from God never end well. And verse 5 is almost more that we can bear. And both Malon and Chilin died. And we read that, so that Naomi, or it doesn't even say Naomi. Do you notice that? Naomi means pleasant. The, the narrator can't even bring himself to use her name. And so he says, so the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. That's heartbreaking. I don't think we can fathom the depth of loss being described in those few phrases. I don't know if we can imagine the hopelessness that Naomi must have felt at this moment. In a patriarchal society back in those days, now she had nothing. She had no husband. She had no sons. And as we'll find out, she had no grandchildren. She was alone. She was in dire states. Everything seemed to have conspired against her. Everyone had done what was right in their own eyes. But at what a cost. We might wrestle, and we will wrestle with her theology as she expresses her understanding of God's providence in her life. But next week she says, or we'll read that she said to them, When she came home, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? The hand of God in my leaving. God's providence is sometimes very hard. It's true, God had dealt bitterly with Naomi, at least in the short run, and it could only feel like bitterness. But this would not be the last word. When circumstances are hopeless, God specializes in turning dead ends into doorways that glorify himself. What a journey so far. The first five books. It's difficult to absorb everything that I believe God is wanting us to know from these verses, but let me kind of pull it together And some thoughts about storms and dark clouds and difficult circumstances that will come into our lives. Something for the memory banks. When we take matters into our own hands and respond with our own understanding to the storms of life, the pathway away from God 
away from the people of God, away from the land of God, is a long and winding road down. Few ever anticipate how far down. So let the progression in the text be a warning to us this morning. Sojourn, remained, lived. When we turn our backs on God's word, we never intend to do it for long. It's only going to be for a little while, we say. It's only a small issue, but it rarely works out that way. Second, remember that when you leave home, there is no guarantee that you will find your way back. We do not know the future. And I want to be careful to say not returning home in a physical sense does not necessarily imply losing your eternal home. I don't think the two necessarily go together. But is it not a terrible thing never to be reconciled to a loved one? Never to be reconciled to a spouse? Never to be reconciled to a family? Never to be reconciled to a church family? Never to be reconciled to a brother or sister in Christ? Oh, what needless pain we make others bear because we never come home. Thirdly, when there is no mention of God in the storms, we should take note. You might have noticed that in those first five verses, there is not one mention of God by any name, in any way, in any one of those first five verses. I don't think it's by accident. I think this family has walked away from God. And their response to the storm and the circumstances of their life was entirely a response of the flesh. The depressing silence in regard to the name of God in Ruth 1, 1 to 2, one writes may well hold the key to understanding what happens in verses 3 to 5. The failure to consult the Lord may be the missing link in their decision. If you're thinking about leaving this morning, think again. If you have already left and set foot in a foreign land, today is the day to come back. Today is the day to return. Today is the day to face the storms that are brewing in your life and face them head on and ask God, what is it that you would have me to learn in my circumstances? Rather than run from your storm, run to the God of that storm. Say to God, you are my refuge. You are my shelter in the time of storm. That's what I think sometimes, how I wish I could see you, God. How I wish the circumstances of my life were not so black. How I wish that you would say something to me. But I know that with you, darkness is as light. As we sang in that song just before the sermon, I will trust you. I will not leave you. I will not go my own way. Loved ones, you can handle any storm that is on the horizon of your life because God rides upon the storm. The psalmist said, he makes the cloud his chariot. He rides upon the wings of the wind. Rather than running from the storm, face it. Because God is able to calm storms, is he not? We read in the New Testament of the way that God, by his great power, 
calms the wind and stills the waves of the sea? Why not go up to the front of the boat, snuggle up with Christ, and say, I know you will not let me go. I know you will not let me sink. Guide me through this storm.